Well, let's go ahead and get started. There, okay. There's going to be a music intro, <laughs> but I don't have it done yet. And I'm going to add that in later. And I can show you what that looks like. It's like five <laughs> seconds and it's an animation and I thought it turned out really cool. Anyways, so welcome to The Modern Method. The Modern Method is a new podcast brought to you by two hosts, one of them being me, Kane Schmidt, and the other one, my co-host, Jesse Krizek. Jesse, say hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and this podcast... This podcast is meant to discuss current events and history where each week we have, well, hopefully each week we have different panelists discussing different topics who we're going to call our experts on things. So there's no time limit on it, but it um, can't go on forever. So we just need to see how the discussion goes. And I think that eventually I'm going to get like a discussion meter. So like right behind me so you can see it as it goes mm -hmm. up and down. And then if it gets too low to the bottom, then it just, it just shuts off. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my idea for it. Um, anyways, our first guest is Rania Asili. Rania is an, a faculty member at Tri-C, which is, for people who don't know, because there will be people watching this outside of Ohio, um, Tri-C is the abbreviation for Cuyahoga Community College, which if, if not one of the largest community colleges in the country, at least definitely the largest in Ohio. So, um, and I'd also like to introduce Rania to Jesse. Jesse, Rania, Rania, Jesse. Nice to meet you. I, have, I was a former student of Rania, so that's how I know her. Um, okay. If you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself to start things off? Yes, first of all, thank you, um, Kane, for inviting me to this podcast. Um, I have been teaching history since 2006. I went for my master's degree in history at Cleveland State University. And I've been teaching everything from world civilizations to United States history. I also teach a course on the modern Middle East. And um, I've taught African-American history as well. So I've taught, you know, just a wide array of history courses. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still teaching today and I enjoy it. And yeah. Well, that's awesome. So the main discussion today is going to be leadership throughout the ages, basically. And the entire point of the modern method is to take these historical um, ideas and translate them and compare them to modern times and see what those things sort of look like. So one thing I would like to do as our first expert on here is um, sort of go through different leaders throughout ancient and classical, post-classical history and just sort of give us kind of an overview about things. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very broad scope of, of um, topic to cover right. because leadership as we know has changed from the time of the beginning of human civilization, we could say even up through the present day in terms of what we expect from our leaders and what we look for in a leader and, um, you know, whether or not people want to be leaders, I think is a question too, you know, um, who, who really feels called. It's almost like a calling in a way to be a leader because, um, you know, you're putting yourself out there. You're, you're heading up a, a group of people and you're sort of guiding them in the process of whatever it is. And so it, it's a lot of responsibility to be a leader. And I don't think everyone feels comfortable having all that responsibility, but I would say that perhaps everyone in their own right today in this day and age in the modern world does have 
um, some ability to lead. And whether it's their families, whether it's uh, in, in their jobs, whether it's in their you know, churches or mosques or wherever, uh, synagogues, you know, the people I think may not realize that they're called to be a leader all the time. Um, they may not realize it because, you know, they're thinking, well, I'm just living my life, but really we are influencing each other, you know, even neighbors influencing neighbors. So today is a very different world compared to what it was back in the Right. I think that that also too, that's a sort of an inherent quality of good leadership is you're doing it just, and that's just how you are, because I think you can also make the argument that there are people who chase power in leadership for entirely different reasons, whatever they are, not necessarily to do, I mean, even good things. Right. So, I mean, when you look back in history too, we can also see like, there's also the um, whole dynamic of a family just being born into things. So that might not even be something, and people, you can see that in movies and stuff all the time of people born into power that don't necessarily want it, maybe aren't even necessarily good at it, or maybe are good at it. And that's just not who they are. Right. It's so true. It's so true. It's, 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 it's really, it's the way I see it is living up to your full potential and not everyone does that. Not everyone feels comfortable doing that for whatever reason. Um, I think leadership is again, it, it comes with great responsibility. Now, if we're to talk about the ancient world going as far back as ancient antiquity, um, we have to understand that leadership was something that was very, um, you know, it, it was, you knew who the leaders were. You right. typically knew who leaders were based on, as you mentioned, Kane, the power that people had, whether they went after it or inherited it. Um, so power uh, through, you know, um, their education, their ability to read and write, which was something that only leaders could, could do. Um, majority of people did not have access to just simple reading and writing. Uh, in fact, the word in Greek, uh, hegeme, hegeome, excuse me, hegeome, uh, means chief, prince, or ruler. So the word hegemon, as you were saying, the power, uh, you know, asserting power, that's something that is very much part of the character of a leader in the ancient world, someone who could handle power, someone who could use power, uh, oftentimes to the benefit of his own people. And I use the word, the pronoun his, because most leaders in the ancient world were men. Now that doesn't mean there weren't women who led in ways that, you know, uh, sort of set them apart from other women and even other men. But for the most part, we know that men were the leaders. How do we know that? Because there was something in the Latin uh, world, in the Roman world, called patria uh, potestas, meaning that, that people were living in times that were father-centered, that the father carried power in the family. He was the decision maker. He was the one uh, setting the guidelines. He was the one who prayed consistently to the gods or goddesses. Uh, he was the one honoring the emperor with his taxes and his work. So he then inherited this power and he would then spread uh, his power in the home and he would be the one sort of managing the home. So 
in the ancient world, fathers played an enormous role in having power and asserting power. Now, it was important to mention that fathers were also expected to treat their wives and their children with respect, meaning that they were to, I mean, their children would inherit their power and their wealth. So they had to be sure to make sure that their children were ready and prepared to carry on that power in the next generation. So, right. yeah. So and you're, and you're talking at this point, what, so that those social ideas are things that just sort of come out of the way that civilization just found itself as it evolved. Um, what specific area were you talking about there? I'm talking about really from the beginning um, of Neolithic societies, probably around, we could say, I would say maybe around like 5000 BC. Which onward. area of the world would that have been in? Like specifically modern day? It, it, I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, I'm talking ge um, geographically, which area of the world modern oh, probably, day was? Yeah, no, great question. Probably the Middle East. That's where civilizations began. Right. Um, you know, we, we always have these little pockets of groups that emerge around the world in, in, in say, Asia, Africa, um, you know, nomadic groups. But um, in terms of actual settled civilization over generations of time, that has been proven in the Middle East. Okay, so I, I don't mean to cut you off here or anything, but this is just sort of something interesting that I'm thinking about. We can trace back sort of cultures back to that area. We can see where like Abrahamic religions started and then branched off and we have similar um, ideals and sort of ethos between each culture, which is influenced heavily by religion. But if, if culture started in the Middle East, how does that influence cultures maybe in the Far East? Hmm, that's a great question. Because we see a lot of different things that they have as far as a value system yes. um, in the Asian countries, especially. Yes. And like as far, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and I almost want to say um, that, you know, there were human, obviously human migrations. Um, there, there is the, what's called out of Africa theory that, that migration patterns of human beings actually emerged from Africa into the Middle East. And from the Middle East, they, uh, based on the agricultural production, the, for example, strains of wheat that were found in the Near East helped to create a huge population explosion leading into a Neolithic revolution. And then you have all these other Neolithic revolutions popping up in places like China, in India, in Mesoamerica. Um, so with that, uh, how did people land, say, in China, I think is what you're saying, like, how did culture in right. China distinct from, and, and that I honestly, I, as I'm not an anthropologist, so I haven't, I, I can't say for yeah. certain, you know, how that, how that official migration, you know, happened, but it happened, and it, and it happened in China in around, I think it is around, um, I want to say 2000 BC is when we start to see a Neolithic revolution emerging in China, particularly around the Yellow River. And so their culture, I would argue that wherever there were large portions of crops that were, you know, fulfilling the population and, and feeding the population, you thus start to then start to see patterns of, of culture that are that are taking place 
uh, along those river valleys. And those cultures could be very different. Right. Um, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. what I'm confusing more is sort of, okay, start of civilization, but not start of humanity. There were humans in other places in this, the first civilizations in the Middle East may have been the first ones recorded, at least, that we can actually talk about. But that doesn't mean that there weren't things going on other places. So I think that that might be where sometimes those ideas, especially for me, apparently get confused. No, not just you. I, I get confused, too. Um, and when I teach, it's like, you know, how do I, how do I explain this? But uh, the best way I can do that is really just say that, that uh, you're right, that, that there were migration patterns in East Asia, that, that people settled in that part of the world, but in terms of a revolution, in terms of a population explosion in the beginning of civilization, um, these happened at different times in different places. Right. It might also be interesting for some people to realize, too, a civilization starting in the Middle East, and today, at least for Americans, if you think about that area, it, you think of not so much vegetation, not so many natural resources. But then when you look back, um, thousands of years ago, like Saudi Arabia was, for a lot of it at least, incredibly lush. And those climate patterns have changed over time and it has done this thing and it's not even the same place anymore almost. So true, so true. They, 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 I think they believe that the Sahara, in fact, in going as far back as like 10,000 BC, that the Sahara was not a desert. I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was very fertile land and it became desert. It was you know, uh, desiccated over time. So right. you're right. The, the climate changing pushes people out of their comfort zones, so to speak, even though there was no such thing as a comfort zone in those in that time, because people were always trying to find the food and, and hunting and, you know, life was dangerous, but, but they were constantly shifting. And as you said, they're moving with the climate, they're moving where there's, there's going to be plenty of food, where they can find herds, where they can move their herds. And this actually explains a lot about why certain, say, civilizations became hegemonic over other civilizations, because, you know, for example, I think of the Turks, you know, the Turkish right. uh, groups and the Mongols, you know, once climate changes took place in Mongolia and it become, became very hard to feed their, their livestock, they started moving westward and that's how they ended up in Turkey, you know, so, right. so it's, it's, this is, this is very important to understand, yeah. So how do we feel each civilization as they started in, like we were saying, in these different places? When did they first start interacting with each other? Well, that's a great question because different civilizations interacted at different times. So, for example, I know that um, Egypt and Mesopotamia, uh, they, of course, interacted through trade as far back as 3000 BC. Um, there's also proof that Mesopotamia and Egypt traded with India, okay, and that sort of helped to give rise to a huge trade trading uh, interaction between these two regions. Uh, China, I would argue, I mean, really since around 200 BC, when they opened up the Silk Road, you start to see a lot of goods and services moving across the world via various routes that are going to become, um, you know, uh, pathways to, to spread knowledge, culture, technology, all of that. So the Silk Road was like, a, it's like the, the internet highway today. It's like the World Wide Web today, but back then it was on foot. 
Right. And right. you may not live through it. So that was that was sort of the, the real issue back then. But but today um, we don't have to worry about traveling on foot. We don't have to worry about being robbed uh, while we walk. You know, uh, while we fly but to here. China. Right. right. <laughs> I was just um, watching this interesting video the other day about the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan and how. Now, I wouldn't say trade, but how travel between their works and how that has caused some of the, not necessarily issues, but just, well, I guess issues with the way that um, at least the Taliban sort of supplies itself and is able to maintain itself. And when you have places like the Soviet Union coming in to take over and then they're unsuccessful at it, you have the British Empire who went in there several times trying to, and they drew a line through these mountains as to where this territory is supposed to be. But even still to this day, you cannot monitor that, that region, that area. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a dangerous region, um, mainly because of the mountain ranges, the topography of the land. Um, and of course the, uh, the tribal nature of the people, you know, this is the very, um, these are a people that uh, refuse to modernize and they refuse to join into the world global community. Um, and they have their own culture. They have their own systems. Right. Um, they also, I would argue, you know, there, there's a lot of danger in, in that region because, you know, children, typically in tribal societies, as you may already know, the first thing taken in, in warfare are women and children. I mean, it's one of the first things taken. So um, women and children are always sort of, you know, in flux and uh, their lives are in, in danger constantly. It's, it's a very scary place for women and children. So as far as how leadership looks, and you said that you, um, you teach on modern Middle Eastern, um, uh, can you rephrase that for me? Yeah, I, well, I teach on uh, the birth of Islam in the region to the time period of, I would say I, I kind of go up through the time of um, the Syrian civil war. When would uh, that be? Recent, recent times. It's still going on today. There's still oh. a civil war in Syria today. So, um, but we don't, we don't talk too much about current events because there's so much history to cover. And it's like a 14 week, sometimes an eight week class. So um, what I have them do is I have them uh, really learn about the Ottoman Empire and how that helped to uh, establish a certain um, di diverse po uh, culture in the region. And then I talk about uh, how the British came in eventually after World War I and established the mandate system. And then we talk about uh, the rise of, of women's rights and we talk about um, the growing um, democratic uh for example the the arab spring that took place and then and then we sort of end where um isis sort of emerges and so it's there's a lot going on in that class but right. yeah i there i just try to make it make sense so <laughs> in some way so yeah. when we look at leadership um in that area because you had mentioned before how tribal it is and i think it still is too i mean the at least for, and I'm only going to be referencing Afghanistan because this is what I've been reading about enough lately. Mm. Um, the seat of power might be in Kabul, but that doesn't mean that they have direct influence over places that might be on the other. And, the, and this is a country that's only as big as France, roughly, I mean, a little bit bigger, I think. But 
their sphere of influence outside of the of the country's capital is not going to have such a dramatic effect. So how do you think leadership, what does leadership look like in those communities where they don't necessarily get, where they get direct direction from Kabul, but they don't necessarily, there is no way to enforce it. Yeah, well, I, I honestly, you know, I think, goodness for this, I, I wasn't raised in a tribal culture, so I luckily don't have firsthand experience in that. Um, but I imagine that a lot of it is run by um, by social mores of their culture and of their tribes. So, for example, you know, um, I think of like you know tribal chieftains. Typically, how do they get their power? They they get it through um, through uh, weaponry, through amassing weaponry and resources. Um, they gain it uh, by by being the you know, trying to show himself as the most powerful. Um, you, mean you know, there's no such thing as a constitution among the Taliban. They don't have, you know, something like we have. They don't have like a, a set of uh, established rights of the people or um, something that sort of preserves the, you know, the, the, the human dignity of each human being. Right. Rather, they go by their religion, but I would argue that, um, you know, that the Taliban practice, practices Islam in a very different way than people do in Lebanon or in parts of Iran or Saudi Arabia. So Islam is a very, uh, a, it's, a, it's a religion that is very diverse, um, even though there's one Quran. Um, it can be interpreted in a million different ways, much like the Bible can, but I would argue, you know, if we're to compare Christianity and Islam really quickly, um, in the Christian world, you know, there are, you know, there are certain, there are certain things that, um, that cannot and should not be done, you know, um, and it's very, it's very explicit in the book, uh, the commandments, um, you know, the, the social mores as established by Jesus the Nazarene, you know, you, you don't covet someone's wife, you don't uh, rape someone, you don't, you know, this, this and that and the other, you respect women, you, you, you know, uh, the husband is to, is to protect his wife and, and, and love her like Christ loved the church and, and, and the husband is to love his, his wife the, the same way. So there's a, there's a real um, mutual spiritual affection between husband and wife. And the one is not, under the other, they are to really, um, you know, uh, subject themselves to each other. Um, in Islam, it is in some ways more open to interpretation because there are certain references in the Quran where, um, you know, there's a part in the Quran, for example, I don't know the exact surah, but the, the man is allowed to beat his wife, but with a small, like, toothbrush, like something very slight. That's if she does something that yeah. And that okay. you can see how that can be misinterpreted. Well, right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, so there's, there, so again, I think any, any holy book is open for misinterpretation, but I will say um, for some reason, and I can't quite understand why this is in the Middle East, the, the Quran has been interpreted in different ways. And I think a lot of it, well, maybe a lot of it does have to do with the social culture and the tribal culture. Um because if, if it's okay for a woman to be beaten, let's say, with a sleight of hand in one area, there are areas where, where men would say, I, we don't beat women at all. Like, that's just not an Islamic principle at all. 
okay, that's great. But why is it in the book then? Because this is how the book gets misinterpreted. Well, that's where then the fundamentalism aspect comes right. from behind it. Right. Um, and I don't necessarily want to try to dig us too much into religion at this point, but let me ask this. So we can see how in ancient civilization before religion, at least Islam and Christianity were founded, what leader, and I'm trying to bring this back to the main discussion, what leadership looked like in that aspect, how did it change once religion was introduced? And do you see that as being used as a way for people to enforce themselves? Well, that's a great question. And yeah, and the reason why, by the way, the reason why I brought up Christianity and Islam, it's because we were talking about the Taliban and how- Oh, no, yeah, no, I'm, it's totally people, fine. And I like I totally, it. I, I get yeah, what yeah. you're saying. No, and I think, I think this is really, really important because our modern understanding of religion today is, um, and religion is in many ways, I think it's sort of earned this reputation of being very um, coercive, very intolerant, very violent at times, justifiable violence. But what's interesting is that's not how it was interpreted up until we could, we could say up until the, um, well, even I, I would say maybe up to through the, the, the mid 20th century, you know, religion. How, wait, wait, like, can you rephrase that? Yeah. Religion was is today the way religion is viewed as a coercive thing. Yeah. Uh, well, as in a whole, I think like as for a lot of the population might think that, but do you think that's necessarily true? Like we can look at things like the Crusades. Oh yes, but please keep in mind the Crusades were were yes they were religious wars, but they also became territorial wars, and they eventually also transformed into. Uh, really, um, <laughs> let's put it this way, we would not have had a renaissance if it were not for the Crusades. So there, there's oh, yeah. some good that comes out of it. But I see what you're saying, that religion, uh, coerced coercion. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is if we're to look at this from the population perspective, if we're to sure. look at it from the people perspective, religion was never, ever something viewed as something that was coercive. If it was, if anything, religion, regardless of what religion that be, religion, it was something to be, um, to be honored. It was something to keep the society organized, to keep people in line, to avoid people from stealing, killing, and destroying each other. Sure. And yet, as you say, religions, once they interact, once these different religions interact with each other, because they are so different, uh, and because they practice uh, their religions so differently, we see how wars are fought and how that, that does emerge. But keep in mind, too, that this happens w without religion, too. I mean, pagans, that's a religion. Paganism right, is a yeah, religion, yeah. and they, they were killing each other constantly. Um, well, I mean, you can look back even in sort of end Middle Ages. I don't know what you would call this point in history, like the, the Mary Queen of Scots age in history. We have Scotland, who was... Christian, like aligned with Christian or Catholic France, that is aligned with the Vatican, which is half of where their power comes from because now they're against Protestant England. Mm -hmm. And these are different ways for people to assume power and maintain control and govern with their yes, influence and, and, and leadership. To, yes. And what I'm trying to say is hierarchy and power and having a hierarchy and a leadership system is inherent in religion. It is part of religion. It is, well, yeah. um, 
and that that is actually a good thing in the ancient world up in i mean in the modern day we don't we and i say we as a collective typically we associate you know hierarchy as a negative thing because it it's anti, antithetical to democracy which actually i would argue is not true and the reason i would say that is that there has to be hierarchy in order for things to get done right i mean you have to have you know people doing different skills doing different things some people have to be the ones leading them other people have to be the ones sort of um willing to give up some power in order to get the job done because otherwise everyone would be in power and nobody would get anything done because people well, right. would be like oh i'm not going to do that you do it you, you know and there's a lot of truth in that yeah jesse what's your what are your thoughts on that um i don't know i'm i'm just kind of taking it all in i'm hmm I'm, I'm trying i've been trying to figure out how to word this because i'm very involved like intrigued in it but i'm just trying to figure out what i want to say right um i don't know it's just it's very interesting because you look at like um you said how the oh, oh geez i was lost my train of thought <laughs> um so as as far as like leadership used at well not leadership i'm sorry religion used as a tool for leaders versus how it's perceived in the public, that sort of dynamic, I guess. Yeah, you know, um, and I have a few quotes. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that'll work. So Madeline Murray O'Hare, she's, she she's a feminist, you may know okay. her, but she stated, religion has caused more misery to all mankind in every stage of human history than any other single idea. That's what she said. Okay. Which I think is really, really interesting and a very big statement to make. She's What's her background? She's an atheist. She's okay. a feminist. Yeah. She, oh, she's alive today. I think she is. I'm not sure if she's still alive today. Okay. That I'd have to look into. But but then I went to George Washington. And I, this is interesting. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. George Washington said, religion is as necessary to reason as reason is to religion. One cannot exist without the other. Well, and there's truth in that too, I think. But, and then that sort of goes back to the whole idea of with progress comes casualty. So there are going to be side effects from it. There are going to be growing pains with everything. So you can argue too that, you know, the religion exists to push forward and be more progressive, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't come without some awful negative sides to it. Well, yeah. And, and I, and I would argue too, Kane, that yeah, religion, I, you see this today, we, we use the word progressive and religion, you know, interchangeably because when we think of religion we think of progression we think of okay we're going to be well, more inclusive we're going to be more i think but, but like progressivism within modern times the last hundred years i would almost say that they're opposites how you do you feel think, about that so but, but many christians were progressives part of the progressive movement in, in america you know i think of uh, even though darwin but everybody was, was. Everybody I mean, was a Christian, but not everybody was progressive. Um, you know, and the thing too is the thing I want to the, the the what I'm trying to get at here is yeah. that religion, at least, and again, I'm trying to keep keep the time frame within the antiquity and up through the I would say 20th century is that religion was really not. Um, I mean, the whole purpose of religion was to really maintain morals and dignity but in the ancient world it was to keep order keep keep society ordered and then today in the modern age we see religion as a means of i think a means of of progression but but the thing is religion is such a it's such a it's such a broad term because you can be an atheist 
and to me be religious because there are atheists who put science as a religion. They put technology as a form of religion. Well, but then so you're a religion is a very vague, broad term today because <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe because right. we're living in a technological age now and it's a very, I don't know what religion means. I don't know what that word means today because because it used to have a meaning it used to mean you were christian hindu jew whatever but but i see now how religion the way it works the way it operates can also be in the form of putting science as your god or putting technology as your god or putting nothing because it could just be the faith in whatever whether that's nothing or anything so do you think that we can draw a correlation between um who would be considered at least in history as successful leadership leaders and what religion they subscribed to. Yeah. And again, I think religion, it benefited these leaders in many ways because you could not really separate religion from the leader. I mean, the leader gained his power through divine right or through divine authority. So it was important for leaders to... And I don't want to use the word use religion because I really believe that back then people believed in a cosmos. They believed in a divine cosmos, uh, whether they called it God or Allah or Adonai, whatever. Mm -hmm. They believed in something greater than themselves. They did not believe that the human existence was it, which I think is something we can learn a lot uh, from the ancient world is they did not see themselves as... um, you know, as the be all and all, they, they, they had to, I mean, they lived a life that was, you know, totally uh, in line with, you know, the, the, the religious ethos of the yeah. time. So I think of, for example, Cyrus, uh, Shirush, the great Persian king. Mm-hmm. And you might remember me talking about him, King, because you were in my class a long, long time ago. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure this is all going to come to your... Oh, yeah. Um, don't, worry, don't even worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, you're telling you're you're getting it all right. Yeah, I know. So he was um, he's known as the progenitor of the Achaemenid dynasty in Persia, and he's most remembered in a cylinder that was found in uh, Babylon, in Iraq, actually, in the 19th century. The British uh, were obviously mining the Middle East for uh, texts to uh, to basically prove the the truth of the of the Bible. And so they found uh, this cylinder, and uh, interestingly enough, they took it to England, and one of the men at the uh, Royal Institute uh, of Archaeology, he studied it, and he decoded it. It it, it was all done in in an old Elamite cuneiform script. Now, the British, to me, were brilliant. I mean, they were were like, I mean, to be able to decode cuneiform, to me, I, I don't know how anyone is able to do that. Uh, I think they had the help of an Iraqi doing that. But oh, absolutely. They, like, what was that? I said absolutely they had help with doing they something had, like they that. Had to have help, These are yes. also the people that decoded the Enigma machine. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting because we would not have, for example, the, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh or, um, you know, the, the amazing cuneiform scripts of the times of antiquity if, if the British hadn't translated them and made them and put them in English. I mean, that's why we're able to read them. But um, so so the cylinder basically praises Cyrus as God, Um, not really 
uh, not really as, well, I shouldn't say as God. No, he's not as God. I shouldn't say that. I, I take that back. Rather, he is praised as the favorite of the gods, as the beloved of the gods. For example, um, it states that Marduk, the great Babylonian god, gave Cyrus the city of Babylon uh, because of the horrible King Nebuchadnezzar, who was really neglecting his people and the land was becoming uh, desolate and the people were dying and they were starving and they needed succor and of course Nebuchadnezzar didn't care and so here comes the great Shirush and he comes in and he just you know he, he does a number on the people he he's liberates them uh, one of the things that's mentioned in the text is that he liberates the people from slavery and they are then go, go they're allowed to rebuild their temples and he's also mentioned in, in the old testament in the book of Daniel and the book of Isaiah Chirush is mentioned as a Mashiach, which in Hebrew, the word Mashiach means uh, protector, deliverer, savior. So leaders in those times were to be like heroes, you know, the Greek word hero, defenders, protectors, the word in Greek also axelia, where we get the word excellence. Axelia means protector of mankind, men who, who ascribe excellence, who um, you know, they are not only physically excellent in their physique, but they are spiritually and intellectually excellent. These are uh, men set apart from other men. And that's why they're oftentimes sort of like uh, envisaged as like, you know, uh, coming from the gods themselves. You know, they're, they're, there's something very godlike about them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and what's interesting, too, is that the Greeks write about Cyrus, you know, even though he's a Persian and the Greeks went to war with the Persians and they hated each other with, with a vengeance, uh, Xenophon, who served in a Persian army, um, he writes about the great Cyrus, uh, and he says, he talks about him as a great horseman hunter. He was a great grandson and a great son, and I think this is really interesting because he talks about, in his book, the Cyropedia, which means the, the, the education of Cyrus. This is what he said in his Cyropedia. He said, so the boy's tongue ran on. He's talking about Cyrus, how, how he tended to talk a lot. Yeah. Uh, but at last his mother went home and Cyrus stayed behind and was brought up in media. Uh, he soon made friends with his companions and found his way to their hearts and soon won their parents by the charm of his address and the true affection he bore their sons so much so that when they wanted a favor from the king, they bade their children ask Cyrus to arrange the matter for them. So these are parents who entrust their own kids to Cyrus, who himself is a young man, but they just love this, this guy. And whatever it might be, the kindliness of the lad's heart and the eagerness of his ambition made him set the greatest store on getting it done. And then finally, he says this, on his side, Estiagus, who happens to be his grandfather, Cyrus's grandfather, Estiagus could not bring himself to refuse his grandson's lightest wish. For once, when he was sick, nothing would induce the boy to leave his side. He could not keep back his tears and his terror at the thought of that his grandfather might die uh, was plain for everyone to see. So you also see Cyrus as a compassionate person. He has a human heart. He is loving and caring for his grandfather. So being able to see all these facets of a man and be able to put that all together and say, that is excellence. That is a leader. Um, I think it, it says a lot about who he was and why he would be called, for example, a savior or deliverer. Right. 
Jesse, who is somebody else that you can think of from that time period that we can sort of analyze? Hmm. You're talking about great leaders, like especially that time period. I know like the Persians had Alexander the Great, which I've always thought he's one of the more powerful leaders, I should say. I know he was very influential because, you know, with um, all the wars with the Greeks and um, him invading Egypt. And he uh, he stands out to me because I think he was one of the first, like, true, you know, like, power. Like, he actually had a lot of power and he was a natural, I think almost a natural born leader with his military background and how influential he was. And I think, I think, um, he could definitely, um, oh, I can't think of the word. I'm, I can't think of the word, but he, I, I don't know, for like ancient leaders, rulers, I think he is probably at the top of the list, even though with, you know, the great Egyptian empires they had, the Greek, you know, all the Greek empires they had. Yeah, he, uh, he definitely changed the game in a lot of uh, ways how to rule and be a leader, essentially. Right. We can look at him, too, just from his uh, accomplishments on the battlefield, at least. I mean, yeah. going all the way through into the Middle East. And he's put up there next to Genghis Khan for conquering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and different aspects like that. And we had talked before about best military leaders. Yeah. Um, but it, especially in that world, there's going to be a lot of overlap between those two ideas. I mean, you can look at all of the Roman emperors and I mean, but that was also just the thing that you had to be able to do. You had to be able to protect and to defend. And in a lot of cases, for whatever reason, go out and conquer other people. You also have to be very influential too. So everyone would, can follow your ideas and you can, you know, rule and conquer essentially. Right. I wonder how people like that would adapt to how, what makes a successful leader today, because that's not going to be one of them. Right. Yeah, Ryan, what are your um, thoughts on Alexander the Great? You know, I I think he was, as you guys said, I, I would put him up there definitely as one of the great leaders of the of, of antiquity. And a lot of that has to do with um, his how he was raised. Um, you know, he it, it's you know he he was highly educated. Aristotle, uh, for example, was his tutor. So he believed in education and wherever he went, he spread what, what the Greeks called Gnosis, knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so whether it was in Egypt, whether it was in Persia, whether it was in Iraq or the Middle East, wherever Alexander went, knowledge followed him. And, um, you know, for example, the Stoic philosophy was introduced uh, to Afghanistan um, in the ancient world, but what was called the Kingdom of Bactria. Um, Alexander took a Bactrian wife. He took Persian wives uh, for his harem. And he believed in fusing the cultures, which I think is really interesting. He conquered them, for sure. He established Greek hegemon over them. But he also believed for longevity's sake and for knowledge to continue, there had to be a fusion of the culture because you cannot rule as a minority over a majority of people who don't speak your language right. for a very long time. It's just, it's not, it's not realistic. You've got to at right. some point have some sort of a strategy to, it, it, it perhaps in Alexander's mindset, elevate them or civilize them. 
Um, speaking to that of different cultures and people speaking different languages all with under one umbrella, a modern example that we can look at that that's happening right now is modern Russia. How many different people actually live in there? I mean, it goes across 12 different time zones in the first place. So you're going to cover a lot of ground literally in that aspect. But especially when the Soviet Union was a thing, we're talking 22 different places that were not Russian that were all of a sudden being ruled over by Stalin and Lenin. And I mean, um, how many different cultures are there in Georgia in the first place? just alone as that small area. And we're going down into these places where these different cultures emerged from and are still having, which is, I mean, this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons that you can't effectively rule over an area that big, but we're talking about the biggest empire, at least by land that there's ever been since Genghis Khan, I suppose. Right, right. And you're bringing up a good point because language, much like religion, can be used to unify people, right? Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's what happened, for example, I think of the Franks, you know, the Franks, I mean, the, the, the Germanic tribes were a series of different groups. They all spoke different dialects. They could, I mean, you put them all in one room, they would have killed each other uh, and, and they couldn't understand each other. But then once you have, say, the great King Clovis and then later Charlemagne, coming in and saying, mm. we're going to make Latin the language of the kingdom, we're going to make Catholicism the religion of the kingdom, um, that then starts to sort of, you know, create a very more unified place. So in the case of, of Alexander, Greek was always going to be the language of high society. It's always going to be the language of the educated. But the majority, as you said, came. Uh, they're all going to speak whatever dialects they can. And that's why, that's why eventually the Parthians will come in and, and, and rid the region of the Greek language and right. culture so the that influence. they can assert their power over that region again. Right. So we can, so you can go ahead and conquer whatever you want, but being able to hold it, I mean, because we can come up with all these examples throughout history of, I mean, the Roman Empire is like the biggest one, right? which then became too big to rule. So they split it in half and then both those failed at some point as well. So there's all these different things that would just influence on how, I guess, great of a leader you are in that point. So what sort of qualities would somebody have to be able to maintain that? And should it even be? Is that even, is that even a, something to aspire to? Because what would be the point in it? Right, right. So the whole point in these conquers throughout the ages is to rule over everything for what? You know, is it I, for it, the betterment of the people? Right. Not really. I mean, if you think about it, if you go over and conquer and rule over everything, it's, it's not going to benefit everyone. It's going to you benefit know. yourself, your ego, your whatever it is that is driving you to do these things. Or, I mean, you could even, I guess you could make the argument that it would be better. Because we could say right now, well, if America, you know, ruled over these places that, like you were saying before, refused to adapt, refused to modernize, refused to give rights to people that otherwise should, we can look at that and see that. And I think that that is one of our big flaws is being the police and wanting to solve these issues and putting our noses in business that it absolutely doesn't belong in. Yeah, but I would argue too, though, that America's, you know, it's the, what pushes America to, to get involved outside of its own borders has a lot to do with its economic interests. You know, it's, it's, yeah. and 
I think we are living in times now where nation states, you know, if you want to consider us still a country with borders, um, every country with borders wants to protect its borders. That's just a, that's a natural concern among right. any nation state. Now, if we're to rid ourselves of the nation state system, then we no longer have borders. We no longer have nationality. We no longer have a, a, a uniform language. We no longer have a uniform culture or idea. And that doesn't rest easy with people. Because if you think about it, if you're going to live in a society where everyone's doing what they want, how they want, when they want, you're, the law is going to be very hard to define and you're going to be just in constant warfare. So I think right. that, the, I mean, everything has a cost, you know, and I think people forget that. They think, oh, well, it would be so great if we just had it this way. Okay, let's think about it. Let's ride that thought out to its full capacity. You know, if we want to go socialist, for example, right, let's ride that out to the full capacity. What is the end goal in socialism? What is the end goal in capitalism? What is the end goal uh, in, in any sort of society you live in? What is the end goal? Is it to uh, take over other areas? Is it to live a peaceful existence? Is it to have a sound economy? Is it to, um, you know, to allow the next generation to thrive? Um, you know, these are questions I think that are future questions that most people don't ask. Well, sure, but we have to deal with them regardless at some point. Right. So how can we see how those um, sort of ideas are falling apart today? Right. And, and how can we learn from this too? Absolutely. So all the things going on. And I mean, if, if it wasn't bad enough before the coronavirus happened, then the coronavirus happened. So that didn't help anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so that just yeah. sort of came so in true. out of nowhere. Yeah. We are living, I think, in times where, you know, um, leadership, a real, we need leadership. We need consistency in leadership. And what does that mean? It means we need someone who is of sound mind, someone who can think about possible outcomes, um, can work among various different groups of people, but is set firm in what he or she believes. And I think people are so easy to waver nowadays because they don't wanna offend, they don't wanna lose, they don't wanna, uh, you know, but I think we're living in times now, Kane and um, Jesse, that, you know, it's almost as if because the world is so uncertain, which it's always been, but now it's like, it's like in our face now, but it's so uncertain. Right. Right. We we still have to stand firm in what we believe, and as a and as an American, the question is, what do we believe? Uh, each American believes in different things, but I think if we're to look at the root of of America in terms of our constitution, let's say, it is that each person has individual worth, each person has individual rights, each person has dignity, um, each child is 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 worthy of. A life, you know, that that should be raised with um, even even just the bare minimum of food and shelter and, and clothing and, and and water. Like this is what in a, in a first world country. I mean, <laughs> this is what we expect in our in our society. Is that actually happening? Is a question. But the the point is that we ha we have to stand firm in in who we are and what we believe. And I think once we start wavering in that or once our leaders start to waver in that it gets very confusing and then the people start to start to hate each other it starts to pits people against each other so i think i think it's really important that each individual have 
a real understanding of their rights and um, what it means to be a leader in their own families and in their own communities, in their own work environment. You know, yeah. each one is called in their own way to, to do what needs to be done um, for the betterment of themselves and their, their families and their communities. And I think that's really important because I, I think that get, that's kind of getting lost a little bit today. I could be wrong. I don't know what you guys think, but. Is there not a virtue in adaptability? So the world has changed over the last 20 years hard, over the last 10, really. And I'm just going to bring Joe Biden up as an example because he is from really a different world when he started, when he started his career, whatever that was. And I'm sure it was probably in like the 70s or something. He has to, and this is good or bad, he had to learn and sort of figure out where he was going to stand at because when you, before you actually start leading and governing, you have to learn yourself as to what your value system even is. And he may be pro-LGBTQ and things like that now. He may be pro-whatever, which is going to be way different than what you could have expected from him in the beginning of his career. I mean, the guy's 78 or something. Um, 40 years ago, would, that, would he have been successful while having these same ideas? I mean, you could argue yes, because he would have been so progressive, but he wouldn't have probably even been considered for any major position if he had spoken these things before. Yeah, I, I typically think that a, a leader who follows public opinion and who allows public opinion to dictate his policies may yeah. not be a good leader. And the reason I say that is because sometimes the public opinion is not right. Right. Having said that, we, we were founded on the idea of the people sort of leading and giving up the ideas and things like that. When you look at the founding of at least the United States in general, it was supposed to be that we're not going to let some guy in a chair across 4,000 miles of ocean decide what is right for us here. But at the same time, that's not necessarily practical. What do you think about that, Jesse? Yeah, I um, I definitely agree with that. Like, um, no, that's, I mean, that's kind of what America was founded on that, you know, somebody, one per one single person shouldn't tell us, you know, what to do, what not. And obviously you need to have order and whatnot. That's, you know, how modern society is. But I feel like, um, how do I want, do I want to word this? I feel like nowadays, like, like you said earlier, Kane, about, you know, uh, Joe Biden's, you know, views on things 35, 40 years ago to today are totally different because the world's totally different. And I feel like a lot of people don't realize, you know, what kind of what this country was founded on, like our beliefs and our rights and how they wanted to do everything because it's been so changed over the 200 plus years, you know, we've been a country. And I feel like that needs to either be readdressed or I don't know. I don't know how I, how to put that, but yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, it's the world's been changing and how leadership has been, you know, from like Alexander the Great Genghis Khan till now is eons different. The old eons away different than what it used to be like. When we look at leadership, how it first started in the United States, at least, um, with regard to longevity, and Ronnie, you sort of touched on this before, consistency and longevity. 
there wasn't a there wasn't a rule put in place that you could only be president for two terms. It was just sort of the unwritten thing, and then it happened, and then it was capped. How do both of you feel about that, and is that necessarily a good thing, or what benefits could there be from having someone be able to lead the country for more than just eight years? Because it's honestly not that long of a time. That's a good point. Well, Alexander Hamilton believed that it should be a life service uh, as president. Well, he, he it kind of is at the same degree. His excellency. What was that? It kind of is a life commitment to the same degree. I mean, even if you're not going to be the president after eight max of eight, well, actually, I guess a max of 10 years. Because you could come in halfway through a term if a president dies and you could be appointed for the remainder of the term and then still lead for two consecutive terms. Yeah. Um, but anyways, max of not that long and you're not going to die. Well, maybe you will, but you're not going to die in that span of time. You're still representing the nation. When, when Bill Clinton goes to give speeches that he gets paid $10 million of speech to give, he is still representing the United States. Yeah, I, I think, though, that... Um you know, the, the founding fathers really set it up, I think, quite brilliantly because they knew and they understood that that things were going to change in the nation over time. They knew that eventually, for example, slavery was going to be abolished uh, over time. I mean, Jefferson envisioned that for the future. Uh, so, does, so did Lincoln, obviously, and he had a war over it. Um, and, and I think, I, I really do believe that the founding fathers, I mean, their biggest fear was tyranny. And when, when I say consistency, I don't necessarily mean consistency throughout every facet of their life. I mean, we, we know I, I was a different person when I was 16, 17 than I am today. I, I, I could say I was not, I'm not consistent when I look back right. at who I was to who I am today. Well, you would never but grow. I, right, right. And that's the thing. That's another thing I, th I think that in terms of leadership and when I think of a leader, it's someone who grows. Now, it's not someone who grows because the public opinion changes. And so he's going to change so that the people like him. I think it's someone who grows because he knows the right from the wrong and he's able to make decisions based on his own principle. Uh, what Henry David Thoreau uh, coined the phrase action from principle, that every action you do has a meaning, has a purpose. There's a reason behind right. it. You're not just simply freeing the slaves because you want everyone to like you. You're freeing them because it's wrong to have slaves. Right. And so, uh, you know, this is, I think, the, the, the power of the presidency. It's a leadership position where the person in, in, in the position, by the way, he's not as powerful, say, as uh, members of his own administration. I mean, you know, we often think that the president's so powerful, but there are a lot of people behind him that are sort of, you know, dictating a lot of things. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, um, he can utilize that power in a way that can bring the country together and cause the country to become stronger and better. Or he could do the opposite. He could create a fragmented country. He could create a, a situation where people are pitted against each other and, he, and, and his policies will, will illustrate that. I, I typically don't listen to presidents very often when they speak. I like to see their record. I like to see who they were in the past, who they are in the recent times, and who they envision themselves to be in the future. Because if if you're if you're going to elect someone, let's say that you agree with um, on matters of economics, but not on matters of social issues, um, that's going to create a a fragmented situation. What you need is someone who who you, who you really follow through all across the board. And that's hard to find. Right. It's hard to find one person 
envisaging everything that you, you know, but um, that's why I think we need to have limited terms. You think that the eight, well, at least the two four-year terms, because I guess you could do them non-consecutively then. So that's a good thing. Yeah. The limit on it. I mean, I think that a limit is, I mean, because you definitely don't want it to be something like, technically Russia has limits, but then they change their rules all the time. So, I mean, I think that the president is technically only allowed to be president for 12 years or something, but 12 years consecutively. So if you break it, now you can have another 12. That's Putin's excuse. Those that's yeah, that lots of that. right. <laughs> which is ridiculous, which is why he let Dimitri have it for four years. And he was like, yeah, all right, I'll come back. Yeah. And, and now he's just changed it that it's for life. Yeah. So that's amazing. One, one of my um, favorite quotes, at least from Winston Churchill, was to improve is to change and to be mm. perfect is to change often. Oh. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you start rewriting the Constitution so that you can be president for as long as you want. Right. <laughs> but if you take that in a way that, you know, is productive, I think that that's something to consider. Absolutely. Um, but, and you can interpret that in so many different ways, because again, we're talking about the, the last two presidents that we've had are baby boomers. And so much so, to, I think Biden might not even be a boomer. I think he's older than that. Yeah, I think he was born before 1946. I think that guy is part of the mature generation. So we're talking <laughs> about somebody who in every aspect should be so disconnected. And I'm not going to say that I'm the biggest Biden fan because I'm not. And I'm not going to try to get too like hard political about it here. Um, but I do think that a lot of his change shouldn't be met with adversity throughout his entire career. Well, I look at his record, too. I mean, I remember when he, for example, put Clarence Thomas on trial. And I mean, he was pretty brutal with Clarence Thomas. And I'm, I'm a big Clarence Thomas fan. I think, uh, you know, the, the man ha uh, was was alleged, uh, had allegations uh, that he uh, sexually harassed Anita Hill. And there were those, uh, I don't know, I don't know, this might be after your your birth, Kane. I don't know. If Maybe I'm, I'm just going to also admit here. that I don't know a lot about what you're talking about right now. So <laughs> well, if you can quickly Thomas, go over it, yeah. He's, he's an African-American U.S. Supreme Court justice, and he grew up in the segregated South. And his life is phenomenal if you ever get a chance to learn about him. But he, um, you know, I mean, he's a he's a flawed man like every man is, every woman is. We're all flawed individuals, but yet he he changed. He, he went from someone who was... Um, you know, kind of living off the grid to getting himself into school. And, you know, his grandfather was very strict on him. So he had a good role model in his life and right. he sort of kind of went through that. And he ended up becoming, he was appointed by um, President Bush Sr. to be a uh, Supreme Court justice. And I'm just, I totally briefed through his life there. But my yeah. point is, um, you know, Biden during the allegation, during the Anita Hill uh, uh, um trial he was really grilling uh clarence thomas and clarence thomas told him he said you know i was never harmed by a white supremacist but i i i can say i've been lynched I've, this is a high-tech lynching is what he called it to all of those democrats in the room that were really grilling him when there was really no real enough enough evidence to prove that he had done what what they were accusing him of 
right. seems like anytime you have a Supreme Court justice that's being nominated, they really grill them and they try to find anything they can, you know, to yeah. derail them. And but that that's one stain, I think, on for me on Biden's past. Right. But well, he also he also likes to smell little girls' hairs a lot. So but that's beside the point. <laughs> I'm just glad that he didn't. Do that I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> uh, Jesse, I'm not going to publicize it or anything, but your voting record is maybe a little different than other people's as far as who you choose. And you can you can say it if you want to, but I'm not going to say it for you. But how do you um, how do you envision people who exhibit change throughout their careers when you go to vote for them? Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one because I mean you really got to see you know like you got to look at their record and whatnot. Like back in 2016, a, a great example. I didn't like either Republican or Democratic Party, and the only one to me that made sense. And I'm a little I can be a little out there in my political views sometimes, but um, the Independent Party, uh, Gary Johnson. I was like, I kind of like some of his stuff he has to say. If we can apply some of that, like. We can maybe make something happen, but, you know, it's hard with that third party anymore because you only had the two major parties. And I've always thought we should it should have at least a three party system because you need that tiebreaker, essentially, for like right, making right. big decisions for the country. And yeah, but for I, will a long time. That, I will say that we should bring back the Wake party. <laughs> well, for a long time, <laughs> I think I think that our third party for a minute there was a Romney. But I could be. <laughs> Actually, it might have been. <laughs> he, he got like one, like he got like one point two million votes or something that year. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> then we could just delude ourselves into that. <laughs> it, like, whatever. So, um, for both of you, who is who do you think is just in your own personal opinion, then the most interesting leader throughout history? Jesse, I'm gonna start with you. Oh, let's see. I personally. Uh... Genghis Khan's very interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, nobody's really has has taken that much land, I don't think. Right. Well, no, they haven't. Well, that much continuous land, especially. Yeah, that much continuous land. And he, uh, he, he I don't know, he was... Um, From a psychological standpoint. I mean, and I don't even know a lot about him as far as, like, what he believed in and things like that. I really just know that guy is a conqueror. I think yeah. he was a he was a he was a pagan worshiper. I know he was shamanistic. He they did that's oh. Mongolian. Yeah, he was also ruthless too. <laughs> I mean, he's not as bad as like some other conquerors, but yeah, he he took uh, he took a lot of continuous land with an iron fist, and he didn't stop till the day he died. Right. <laughs> right, and that's also something again falls apart as soon as he's gone. Right. That was like, you know, when the Roman Empire finally fell, obviously um, Napoleon. Right. Napoleon Everybody, because you could say, because we're talking leaders, good or bad. I mean, obviously there's, and there's even a show about it, like a fatal attraction to like Hitler and things like that. Yeah, People that we can see that at least it's from like an experimental standpoint as to what they're, I mean, if he died before the war started, he would have been considered one of the greatest leaders that ever lived, at least in Europe. Yeah. I think for a lot of reasons, going from completely rebuilding the economy from an from a destroyed first world war 
and all of the different kinds of things he did that were progressive, like highway systems and things like that, transportation systems, all of these economic ideas that he had that were in the end meant to fuel the war machine. But there were there was even do you guys know the story of how the Volkswagen Beetle like first became a thing? Ronnie, do I you know? Was, that? Wasn't Hitler trying to um, emulate Ford? Well, I think that the idea of that was he had this, because um, they didn't have like a pay-as-you-go kind of system. There wasn't a credit, like credit wasn't a huge thing in the 30s, at least in Nazi Germany. But when he started to build this, what he called a car for the people, this beetle was supposed to allow you to do all these things. I mean, it was so it was somewhat buoyant for if you were going to go off the road or something like that. It was perfect for fitting people in the car. It had a lot of trunk space. And you were supposed to be able to enter into a credit payment plan to buy one of these before they were produced and have a vacation home in, I think they called it Flora, was like this spot for Germans to go to. Like, I think you could only do it if you were obviously of a certain ethnicity or something like that. Mm. But you would make these payments. They would give you this, um, like, payment calculator box where you would get a certificate that says you made your monthly payment. You could put it in there, collect these stamps and things like that. And it was supposed to be this big thing for German culture that eventually no one ever got delivery of their Volkswagen Beetles. Though all that money and those factories that were being built, that was going towards weapons, that was going towards vehicles for the military specifically. Those, um, the, the ruins of these, because these places did exist, um, these facilities that were supposed to be the pro vacation spots, the buildings are there. And I think that they had, I could be wrong on this, but I think that they only used them for marketing and propaganda purposes that's why there would be some remnants of something in there but no one ever got their vacations no one ever which was a timeshare basically no one again and this was all just like deceded into funding that entire war machine and that yeah. is really interesting just the way that you can i mean it, they were the best at well, I guess the United States is the best of propaganda right now, if you want to think about it. Because, I mean, we have Hollywood, <laughs> which oh, will goodness. just, that is the biggest propaganda machine there is. And I think in a lot of ways for a good reason. I'm not saying that it's bad, but it, that's pushing our agenda forward. And the influence of the United States throughout the entire world. Rania, do you listen to Rammstein? What is it? <laughs> do you listen to Rammstein? No, I haven't heard no. of it. What is that? Is that a podcast or no, no, it's a German metal band. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um you don't know the song Du Hast? No. Du Hast. No, it's seriously it's somewhat new. I mean, it's like a 90s rock song. They did a lot of stuff with Marilyn Manson, so that's sort of now you can okay, sort of that play. might be why I don't know. I, I I was never into Marilyn Manson when I was in high school. I was into um Nine Inch Nails. I liked Nine Inch Nails. Oh, well, Trent Reznor did some stuff with them, I think. Oh, and, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, they have a song called America where they're just shooting out every, like, American cliche that there is. Um, I can't exactly quote the lines because it's in German and I don't speak that. But um, though they reference things from, like, McDonald's to Mickey Mouse. And to, the chorus is actually in English. says, we're all living in America. America, it's wunderbar. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just my reference to trying to tie in how America is so good at just influence in general. And I don't think there's ever been something like that before either. I think a lot of people really 
uh, admirer, um, not the government of America, but certainly the, the idea of freedom that we have. I mean, if you look at the constitutions of most of these nations today, they're all very much influenced by the United States Constitution, I mean, whether it's in Greece, whether it's in Turkey, whether it's in Jordan, whether it's in Iran, all of their constitutions talk about human rights and dignity. And so it, it's, uh, you know, we really set a precedent now how we play that out in our military machine. And as Eisenhower said, beware the military industrial complex. You know, I mean, um, and Americans are not stupid about what's going on. They, they, they're aware. I think more Americans are aware of the, da the damage we've done. But at the same time, we've also done a lot of good. And um, I, I mean that sincerely, especially for like the women in Afghanistan. They, they're yeah. now going to school and they were getting educated. And now this is all going to be backfiring. And that's pretty unfortunate. But there's a lot of good things that America has brought to the world. There's a lot of not good things. Yeah. But I yeah. think what other cultures like to do is they like to take the good. Yeah. Well, I mean, also our value system is intertwined too. I mean, I don't, I'm not ever trying to say that our government is inherently evil, is doing things for because Hitler did them or whatever. <laughs> but the value system between that and what we're founded on, and then the value system of at least what Hollywood exhibits usually, um, are so close to the same thing that it just makes it so easy. And it is just that, like, it's not harmonious, but that symbiotic relationship between the two that allows us to push our ideas on everybody else and everybody else take take them there are so many people on instagram that just promote mcdonald's like what <laughs> <laughs> like in ukraine especially it is just it's a huge thing that like people wearing shirts that just say mcdonald's like just all this american stuff because that is just what it is or that the, the New York Police Department, even <laughs> it is just so weird. It's you would well, you, you would have never seen that before. Well, and I think a lot of it too stems from the Cold War period onward. Because if you think about it, like you know when the Cold War was happening, a lot of these Eastern European countries, you know, they were like under complete, you know, um, the, the complete thumb of their of the dictator, and and they they didn't have the freedom to move about. They didn't even have options of right. what to buy in the stores. I mean, things yeah. were pretty much empty. Right. I mean, um, and then and then they hear about America and they and they see what it's like in the western part of Europe and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I want to live there. I want to have that. And and they wanted America, American influence in that respect. Like they wanted that freedom of movement and freedom of wants. Right. Uh, and blue jeans not even being a thing until the nineties. Right. You had to go have someone throw them over a wall, not to make a joke out of that, but to, but to be able to get even things like that, just such harsh control. And then you look at what happened as soon as that whole union dissolved. Again, 22 nations overnight now have no government. They have, they have to completely redefine who they are. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's just insane. Like you just think about that, the magnitude of that. And one night you're like, oh. <laughs> so, Ronnie, let me ask you a question. If you could, for a week, live in another time period, it's got to be a hundred years ago or more. Where would you go, and why? Oh my gosh, uh, uh, over over a hundred years ago. Right, because if you, because I mean, like I could say, like, oh, I want to go see what the '80s was like, dude. 
but not really. A lot of plastic. <laughs> so um, we could even take that further. We could even say pre-1776, wherever you want to go. Jesse, you're going to get this one too, and then I will also answer. Hmm. I don't, this, I, I honestly can't say that I would want to go anywhere pre-1776. I mean, because pre-1776 was a pretty, you know, I mean, I guess if you're thinking about like ancient antiquity, like maybe. All right, let's just say for a day, you don't got to spend all week there. <laughs> okay, so I don't have to live there. Okay, no. I got it. Um, no, 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 yo, you were, this was never a life commitment. Yeah, but as a woman, like I wouldn't have had much to do. Like, oh, that's just sitting in someone's home, like spinning yarn or something. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> for a thought day. Should have thought of that before you asked me. No, you get, you're the little Google guy that you get picked up by your shirt and dropped. You don't you don't start off in somebody's house just doing something. <laughs> I don't start. Okay, got it. Um... <laughs> you start running around with all, and you could you could be telling everybody where are your automobiles and where's. <laughs> Def Leppard at because I'm <laughs> and, and just really cause a scene or you could observe if, if there's an event or something oh, that you would have okay, really liked observe. to have seen what was that if there was a particular event that you would like to have witnessed you know that wasn't I, Genghis I would have loved to have been at the constitutional constitutional convention but that's well that's pre-1776 so I guess maybe like I'd love to have been like in colonial Boston or or Philadelphia, yeah. Um, pre seventeen seventy six, just kind of get a feel for what the mood was like between those who wanted to stay close to England and those who wanted to break away, and just sort of you know um, experience life in a place where there was a lot of diversity and yet a lot of um, tension about the future, like where you right. could just like sense what was going to happen. But you know, I just think, I, yeah, I, maybe that might be. Okay. I mean, I guess hopefully that would be long enough after everybody got off the vote and got rid of their scurvy, but right. you wouldn't want to. Hey, yeah, definitely no scurvy. I don't want to be around the scurvy. <laughs> I'll, I'll go wipe off barnacles from underneath the ship. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it was like, like hey. <laughs> Jesse, what about you? Oh, I'd actually have to agree with Ronnie. Like, around that time, like, either, either right before that, I think, just because, um, how everything was changing and how you know you come into this whole new place you've never been and it's just luscious and you're like i've never seen so many resources in one place at one time and it's kind of blows your mind because you never really see that because you're coming from you know england you're on an island yeah it's green it's luscious you know but like you can see the size of it and it just keeps going and you don't know when it ends and it's <laughs> I mean, you personally wouldn't have like a big learning curve with that. What's if that? you were, it said you personally wouldn't have a big learning curve with that if you were dropped in as you are right now. Right, because then I would be telling, like, telling them, I'd be telling them all the stuff that they should probably know before this happened. Not the war, but like all the resources <laughs> you can get. One, not the I, war. I'm, I'm not going to that, that part. for them. That's going to be a surprise. <laughs> You're just going to be sitting in there drinking some like <laughs> council issued beer. <laughs> the best how it is. <laughs> hey, that's why I would. That's might be eventually. I probably would find how find out how to make like the first batch of whiskey and moonshine. Let's see. <laughs> okay, it doesn't affect right now, so you're not going to be a cajillionaire for it. So don't get any ideas. 
we Why have perfected that. People yeah. have tried to do this when I send people back in time and I've just learned from that. So you don't need to do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry. I've been to the past. I know how it is. <laughs> I'm going to take it a step further since both of you guys wanted to say the most recent thing that you were allowed to within the stipulations of that conversation. I'm going to go with something. I'm going to go with somewhere in the Mediterranean, like a thousand BC. And not for a particular event or anything, but I often think about what life is like when you don't have, like, just, you don't have a place to go to work. You, you're, you're doing things that you just make up. So mm -hmm. there is no business that you're trying to, like, make into this big thing. There's no time stamp on when you have to do this, when you have to do that. There's like, you just, you start from basic and you just recreate it. And what does that end up looking like? It's like an exercise that I've been trying to do to keep myself sane. <laughs> and you probably would have known all the constellations because like, that's what like helps you tell time, right? So like- yeah, time In one day, no. No, not in one day. I could, that's the dipper right there. But if you were to live- <laughs> Wait, you might. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I just think that that would be so interesting to see what that would have what that would have been like, and and you just you have no choice but to create out of nothing, right? And in one day, that's not gonna, I guess, really help you. So I'm gonna have to go with the week there. I get all right. So then let me play fair and let me go with one day. Then what would I like to see happen? Hmm. I kind of want to see battles, but I don't want to die. I don't need to experience what it's like to get a spear shoved through my chest. What about a gladiator combat? Oh, yeah. You want to go watch that? Okay, so if I can... Watch people get eaten by beasts? So I can put some chloroform over, like, the king's mouth, and then go take a seat and be like, ah! <laughs> well, then you, get to do the, then you can do the infamous... Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you do. You don't rule anything. That's all you do all day. <laughs> right. And I just have a six-foot-eight bodyguard. Just ripped. It's <laughs> just be like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I don't have to know the language either. I wonder what it would be. There's also a, um, and this is something to think about too, how far back you could go and still communicate with somebody who speaks English effectively. There's a video on YouTube about that. And I can't remember who put it up or anything. But I think it's like, I think it's a long time. I think it's like 500 years. Plus, their English would have been very different, so it might not even be, like, recognizable as English. Like right. Well, I mean, you look at Shakespeare English, and that's, like, right. um, that's Elizabethan. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's so also hard. high class. That's not how anybody was talking. That's true. This is true. Yeah. Okay, last thing I want to leave with. Favorite song that has to do with history. Hmm. I mean, okay, I'm going to let you, Jesse, go first, because I, I okay. honestly, I struggled with this one. Well, so with historical events and stuff like that, there's, all, there's like, there's Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden, which is really great. Yeah. And there's, um, you know what, this is even a hard one for me. I can't believe I asked it and didn't have my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, you're really good with music. Give us some, give us some food for thought. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think it would be a good one because I can, there's so many directions I could probably go. Like, um, there's a, there's a country album they made. It was like a divided and united and it was a bunch of modern country singers doing 
Civil War songs. I think I played some of them for you. Yeah, you did. And oh, because well, Chris Stapleton did one. Yeah, because Chris Stapleton did one with his two brothers. And all it is is just bass, a little bit of drum, and a fiddle. And Chris Stapleton is literally singing um, Two Brothers, which I think it's actually a song from the Civil War era. Yeah, and to yeah. Hear that like a modern, folk song. Yeah, it's a, it's a folk song from the Civil War. And to hear it modernized with one of, I think, one of the best American art, American artists right now singing it, you actually feel it like it sounds like it should be like during that time. Like that's yeah, how the, yeah. the song sounds. All right. Like it's being recorded in that time period. I got my answer. Okay. The immigration song. Oh. What's the immigration song? What's By Led Zeppelin. Oh, okay. Do you, do you um, know it? Mm-mm. No, it's I'm that, sure if I heard it, I would know oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to start out the podcast by getting a copyright claim or else I would ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that for the second episode, but this one I would like to go up clean. Right. Um, but that's the song about like the Nordic Vikings and stuff. And there's a lot of analogy to Norse mythology. It's like they played it in Thor because it fits, obviously. That song's been new. You can hear that song a lot in movies, especially like any like battles like any like leading battle leading up to a battle scene or something if it has that mindset yeah you'll def- you can definitely hear that song right it's that song that ah. i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to google that Jeez. and if it sounds exactly like that i'm gonna be like you need to do a cover <laughs> of it <laughs> uh, okay yeah because you need to hear that all right so that's my pick that's my pick and okay. mr crowley Mine is not of an event. Mine is not in a, of an event, but it's it's a really, I love this song, Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. about like helping the poor. Like, come on. Like, and then I put We're Coming to America by Neil Diamond. But, uh, yeah. I know well, that, again, that's not over an event, but We're Coming to America. Like, Man in the Mirror is also just such too a, good. There's such a great like tune to that song and, and the vibe and the, you know. Just yeah. get y'all riled up. Right. Nobody mentioned any Boom Chick songs like Billy Bayou. Oh. Like, oh. I was I was also thinking of uh, Creedence Clearwater, like Fortunate Son. That's another good song. Oh. I was thinking of that one too. I didn't know how far back we wanted to go. Right, right. <laughs> um, I've been listening to a lot of CCR. I love I love CCR. I got like two albums with them on vinyl. Yeah, it's amazing. They. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways that um probably a good spot for us to end then so Radia, thank you for coming on it was great to it was great to see you again first of all i haven't seen you since I, since tri c closed down i know it's I been know. like a year and a half for that are you back we're gonna be going back this fall okay so yeah for in-person got kind of mixed emotions about that i mean i'm looking forward to being around students but i don't want to be like sitting in my in front of my computer all day yeah right <laughs> yeah true but yeah. it's gotta it would be real nice i guess to be back in around people and stuff too so things keep constantly changing here and you know what things might change again too with the variant coming out it is just so I weird yeah. i there is somebody that i didn't introduce to you rania for this call who's been sitting here the whole time the globe of knowledge I was looking at that. I'm like, is that a globe or is that? I thought it was a, um, what about the gramophone? No, no. It looks this like is... the opening of a gramophone. Like, no. I could not figure out if that's a, 
Is that a globe? It's a globe. It's a liquor globe. There's a mimosa waiting for me on it for when this is over. I love that. (laughs) That's so cool. I love that you have mimosa waiting for you. But oh, how cool. Yeah, isn't that awesome? That's so cool. Person, oh my God. Person, I'm I love so it. jealous of it. Yeah. <laughs> that is oh. a cool piece. Yeah. So that's just in the corner of my office at all times. <laughs> Did you like order off, that off of Amazon, Kane? Were you like, my I sister mean, got it for me because she's awesome. Hmm. And I don't, it is a total, it is a total me thing to have. And I wanted one so bad. I didn't even say anything to her about it. She just knew. So, <laughs> which is awesome. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyways, yeah, great to great to see you. Hopefully we can have you on again for another discussion. I Absolutely. Well, anytime, let me know. I, I can't guarantee every weekend, but like if you ever needed me yeah. to do another one, let me know. We could change it up a different, totally different. I, I don't know if I was interesting or if I bored no, absolutely. you. Absolutely. Oh, you were. I mean, you this, guys is, were awesome, though. this is support that we don't have because we're not, all these topics, we're not don't actually know what we're talking about on any of them we can look around online and see and figure stuff out and have a discussion about it but it's great to have that um academic perspective on it of just everything that you study and teach and know and stuff it's the things that we couldn't couldn't get to yeah so yeah and jesse i I don't know who you were so forgive me are you you both are close friends you and kane oh yeah i'm a little bit of a Oh, I am a nice. huge jerk and just completely just didn't even explain that. So <laughs> we went to high school together. Jesse and I went to high school together and we um, live pretty close. So we are just friends from that way. So nice. Is, yeah. are, you in, are you in Colorado too, Jesse? No, I'm still in Ohio. Oh, okay. I almost, I I almost went out there. Oh. Yeah, he was pretty close and then he got a promotion. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah, being brought to you from Colorado Springs... In Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Two opposite parts of the country. Right, almost, right. Almost opposites, not fully opposites. But. Right. Well, that's going to give us some good material because he's supposed to come out here soon. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Have a great rest of your yes. Saturday, you guys. You too. Yep, it was nice you meeting too. you. Very nice meeting you, Jesse, and great to see you, Kane. And just keep it keep in touch and let me know when you get this all edited and stuff. Oh, yeah.